you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Heard a lot of complaints. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It is Friday, July 10th, 2020. I'm going to read to you the headline of my beloved bright one, Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered as it is every day. Here we go. Change of art. <laughs> change of art. Get it? It's a pun. Should be change of heart, but change of art. Oh, that's a stretch. Sometimes. Uh, come on, bright one. Uh, Madigan pushing to remove portrait of Stephen Douglas from Illinois House, saying he recently learned. <laughs> I love. It. He recently learned of Senator's disturbing past as a Mississippi slave owner. Michael Madigan recently learned we had a civil war in the United States and. Uh, Anyway, uh, as we do with um, all our guests on bonus shows, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce him or herself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. You know, Ben, I've been on your show, and Dennis, I've been on your show uh, many times. I th- I want to say, is this the first time I've actually been distinguished? I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> your introduction makes me feel even more distinguished than usual, if that's not the case. Um, yeah, this is Nick Dunkey. I'm a reporter with ProPublica Illinois and a, uh, a former colleague and collaborator of Ben at the Chicago Reader. Yep, and he has been on the show a lot, and it's sort of Mick Dunkey's family day in the Ben Jarofsky show. About two hours ago, uh, Ramana Hussein, uh, Mick's wife, and I were talking all kinds of things, and uh, I reminded her, Ramana, I'm going to be interviewing Mick uh, in a couple of hours, and she said something along the lines, I'll make sure I'm not home to hear it. Uh, so anyway, uh, more <laughs> jo- throw Mick Dunkey under the bus jokes, Ramana Hussein, we've come to appreciate them. All right, Mick, I have a whole list of things to talk about. But since I led with that, I just have to ask you your thoughts. Change of art, question mark. Uh, Michael Joseph Madigan, House Speaker, has decided he's going to use his power, vast powers that he has, to take down the portrait of Stephen Douglas. He apparently read a book recently, Mick. I'm not making this up. I don't know if you saw this article. I read the article in the, the Sun-Times. He apparently recently read a book uh, in which it mentioned that Stephen Douglas uh, had a disturbing past as a Mississippi slave owner. And it, he didn't, wasn't aware of that, and so he's decided to take the paintings down. Your general thoughts about this? Well, I'll, um, I'm, I'm going to quote our mutual friend, Dan Mihalopoulos of WBEZ. I saw a great tweet from Dan that said, uh, the longest-serving speaker of a state house in U.S. history uh, just learned about Stephen Douglas's past. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, suggesting, I think, and that it's a little bit hard to believe, um, especially someone who is on top of his, of his game and a master of detail, as much as Mike Madigan. Um, 
I don't know. You and I talk offline and I'm, uh, about various people who claim to read things and the volume of reading. And uh, so this almost falls in the same camp. And, you know, do we believe that Mike Madigan was reading this and just came across it? I had to roll. It's possible. I'm not going to rule it out. But uh, more likely, this is a master politician understanding that this is an issue of the moment that he can uh, win. Uh, a way he can get an easy win. Uh, even the Republicans that got quoted at some of the coverage were saying, fine, Barack Obama, I didn't necessarily love everything he did, but that's the Democratic side of the House anyway. Do what you want. So, Yeah, so they're going to put up a, a portrait of Barack Obama. My, my uh, solution is just don't put any portraits up at all. Just nothing. <laughs> or go the other way. And we've had this conversation many times. Go the other way, and I was putting uh, putting this idea out earlier on my show. Put up your races from the past if you must. Don't run away from your history, but write uh, below the captions that explain the lives they led, the political decisions they made. So it becomes almost like a museum, like the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, where Pete right. Rose would be enshrined, and it would say. Pete Rose gambled on baseball or Roger Clemens would be enshrined. Roger Clemens took steroids. One or the other, Mick, either take them all down or be honest with they are uh, about who they were. What's your thoughts on that? I think that's a great solution. I, uh, I don't know, given the political climate, if, if it's going to be enough to uh, near, nearly add another bit of information under Stephen Douglas's portrait that, that adds his history, I think the question is why he's taking up valuable space in a public body with this guy who was a slave, you know, connected to the slave trade and the, and, and the ownership of slaves. Um, I, I don't know if you're into this this group, Ben, but there's a great uh, hip hop group called Run the Jewels, uh, Killer Mike, who of course has um, been out in uh, in the news uh, not so long ago. Um, when he was uh, on live television, basically made, issued an appeal to people of Atlanta to uh, channel their fury and rage into political change rather than into uh, disturbances out on the streets, um, rioting, that is. Uh, but anyway, they have, a, they have a new album out that's really good, and there's a track on there where essentially the chorus is, it goes something like, Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar bills. And, you know, this isn't anything new, but I got to tell you, like, just hearing the song and hearing it put that way, like, every time you pull out a dollar bill, there's another one of them. I mean, it really is an issue. So, um, you're right. Something has to be done. I don't know how practical it is to start taking people off of our various uh, dollar bills and finding new people who probably have their own flaws. Um, which I think probably gets to your point about let's let's amend or, or address the uh, the full context of the history instead of trying to wipe everything clean. Um, but in this case, Mike Madigan been trying to score an easy victory. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't believe uh, for one minute you read it in a book. By the way, you mentioned Killer Mike, and this is an example of the bizarre way that I view the world. Uh, I know nothing of Killer Mike's music. I must confess. But I know him as a public figure, and I know him in the context of the appeal he made a few weeks ago regarding looting in Atlanta. 
And I remember the remarks he made. And actually, there's a relevance to what we were talking about because in those remarks, he made a point of alluding to a historical event called uh, the Cornerstone Speech. And that was a speech by a Confederate leader whose name escapes me at the moment. Can't believe it's a sign of senility. Mick, I cannot remember this Confederate leader's name. This- Give Mike Madigan a call. Maybe he's read about it recently. <laughs> you know. I'm sure Madigan could probably give chapters and verse in the car. But the cornerstone of the Confederacy is a belief uh, that black people are inferior to white people. And it was making it very clear that the Civil War was about preserving slavery as opposed to the myth that's been um, spread in the last uh, 50 years or so that it was all about s- state rights and uh, that waving the flag. God, Mick and I, I'm gonna re- we're not going to go into a Leonard Skinner versus uh, Neil Young <laughs> argument, okay? We've had a few of those. I'm with Neil Young. Uh, but... Uh, and he was, and, and for the record, I'm not not with Neil Young. Okay, um, <laughs> you're heading so. into John Kerry country right there. Okay, I am not not with Neil Young. <laughs> I was for it before I was against it, or whatever it was. Anyway, but Mike uh, Killer Mike, he, and he, he said this. The court, he made a point of, of of noting that we cannot forget our history. We cannot write clean, wipe the slate clean. We have to realize that something like. The Confederacy is lodged in this hatred toward black people. And I found right. that a very compelling argument that he made. And the cornerstone speech delivered by the uh, vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. Yes. So. How did, did you look that up or did you know that? I looked it up. Oh. I looked it up. Oh, I, I didn't know honest. a little bit of I did, Yeah, I have to be honest. I didn't know that. I, I didn't remember who it was either. I. Uh, I'm a little bit of a Civil War um, uh, geek just through my father, who was uh, uh, basically an amateur historian, did talks and whatnot on the Civil War. And every family vacation, uh, Ben, for many years when I was a child, involved a stop at a Civil War battlefield. But, uh, wow. And I'm glad that I do know that history. So, um, so I'm, all, I'm all for preserving the history. Let's study it. Let's talk about it. I think what we're talking about, though, is the mythologization, the the mythologizing, that's that's a little close to me, but the mythologizing of various people from our history and their record um, and presenting incomplete versions of who these people were and what they did and revering those incomplete versions rather than discussing, uh, you know, both the things they brought and and their major, you know, their major... uh, mistakes and their, their major uh, prop character flaws. I mean, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, uh, obviously, you know, one of the uh, writers, uh, the principal writer, I believe, of Declaration of Independence, this incredible document. And we can't take that away. But on the other hand, uh, I mean, you also can't, can't uh, just suddenly write away or try to erase uh, Jefferson's uh, you know, own history as a slave owner and uh, arguably as a rapist, right? Um, having uh, a, a long time, at least one and, and perhaps many other, uh, you know, of his slaves who he um, engaged as, as sexual partners. So uh, this stuff gets complicated really fast. Well, actually, uh, uh, you could take the word arguably out of that last sentence about a racist, but uh, there was just a very compelling essay 
uh, make uh, it was in the New York Times by Lucian uh, Truscott, I think, uh, who is a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. He was making a compelling case uh, that we should take down the Jefferson Memorial, that we should not have a memorial to a man who was a slave owner and was a racist. Uh, and he talks about it as being a descendant of Jefferson. And what you said was so true. And it's, it's, it's so bizarre. Here we are having this conversation. This is classic Mick and Ben. We, this was not even on our list of things to talk about, but whatever. It wasn't. It was wasn't. Real, real quick, Ben, I, I, I didn't say he was uh, arguably a racist. I said arguably a rapist. Rapist. Oh, rapist. My um, bad. Yes, yes, rapist. yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, because that, that will take us all into the weeds between his, with his relationship with Sally Hemings, which I am not an authority on, but obviously they uh, do not have, you know, Slave owner versus slave, I am not going to sit here and argue that that was any kind of an equitable relationship. So I said arguably a rapist. Yeah. Um, and uh, just to be clear about that. Gotcha. So. gotcha. Yes. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, anyway, uh, so, uh, but the point you made is, is a very compelling one. Uh, I do not believe, obviously, I do not believe we should just throw away our history and stop paying attention to the past because we we've come we're coming face to face with the realization that the founders of our country were were racists and in some cases rapists at the same time and this is the point you were making we shouldn't venerate them right you know we we should not we should take if if you're a slave owner you shouldn't be on the dollar bill i i i can't think of a compelling reason to have a slave owner on the dollar bill and it it's tragic mick that it took george floyd's execution for us to come face to face with it that's how it's happened uh it's so common it's everywhere in our nation's uh it's, it's woven literally woven into our fabric in some ways um it's not it's not ironic in some ways it's uh it's very revealing that the people who literally, some of the people, not all of them, by the way, but some of the people on our dollar bills, um, Washington, on, on the one dollar bill, right? I mean, slave owner. Uh, if you go to the uh, National Smithsonian Museum of African American History, you know, it, it, you'll learn that George Washington's quote-unquote false teeth were actually taken from a slave. Like he literally had teeth in his mouth that came from another human being's mouth. And I have, a, I, I, you know, obviously it was forced from the other guy's mouth. I doubt if the guy stepped forward and said, I'll give my teeth to George Washington. I mean, um, so the fact that he is on the dollar bill in some ways is extremely, is extremely revealing about this country because the economy in, in parts of it was literally built on slavery and the slavery system. And so our, our monetary system, our financial economic system, at a certain point in time, in a large swath of this country was built on slavery. So the fact that um, I'm one of those people, of course, I've, I've you know, quote unquote, who, who's for slavery, who's for uh, racism, then you know, setting this uh, as much as I could during my life, and so forth and so on, Ben. But a moment like this, where I hear it in a song just a few, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just kind of like, man, I know that about Washington and these other guys, but you know, that really is screwed up. That really is so deeply offensive to everybody who uh, should be against 
racism. It should be deeply offensive. Yeah, it is. It 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 should be, and and we we don't we 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 just go along. We, we just went along with it, and it's it just this moment where we, it was almost like this country woke up and realized, you know, what we were complicit with. And so now we're at this spot where Michael Joseph Madigan, this is what got us started, is taking down the portraits that he walked by literally thousands of times over the last 30 or 40 years of his power without thinking twice about him. Uh, but that's a moment. And I, Mick, I'm telling you, uh, there, uh, it was a similar moment to uh, the um, uh, Me Too moment. That was like 2017 and 18, where all of a sudden these revelations were coming out. People were openly speaking about things that were kept secret. And uh, it dramatically changed the conversation uh, in our country. Uh, and this is a similar experience. It's happened over the... And, you know, it's ironic, I'll put, give you this to you and get your reaction, that these moments of truth where the United States is confronting its racist past and uh, its racist leaders that it venerates is at a time when the president of the United States is arguably the most openly racist president of the post-World War II era and is dedicated uh, to putting this mildly, a lack of truthfulness is known. They're right now, the Washington Post keeps a count, a daily count of all the lies he tells. So this moment of truth is coming during a moment of lies in our country. It's, I guess, ironic. Uh, yeah, maybe it's, it is all coming to a head at the same time. I mean, as a president who not only, uh, first of all, no one knows what his personal beliefs are, but that doesn't matter. He's obviously using race and racism to further divide the country and try to rally a certain group of people that he thinks will help, you know, propel him to a second term, apparently. So um, they're not even, they used to say dog whistles, but these are not even dog whistles anymore, right? I mean, this is just very overt kinds of, kinds of racist stuff we're hearing from the White House. Um, so now, I have to say this, I don't say this very often other than phrase, but in defense of Mike Manikin, um, walking past that portrait, not thinking anything of it. I mean, the, the anecdote I mentioned earlier, I, you know, just want to follow through in that thought. How many times have I pulled out a dollar bill and even knowing that Washington was a slave owner and, and of course, thinking that was a total mess and a total contradiction of other things that he is revered for, how often have I thought about just the level of offensiveness um, of, of his ex existence of his faith on the dollar bill? I haven't thought about it much. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. So I think, you know, while, you know, many of us are wondering, oh, how could you wake up and just realize racism existed? On the other hand, I think uh, a lot of us, and, uh, you know, I'm talking about fellow white people out there are realizing um, how many so-called little things or every, they're not little things, everyday kinds of things mm -hmm. are out there that should be reminders of the depth of white supremacy in this country. And a lot of us haven't gotten most of the cues. So I just want to include myself in that because let's be honest, right? all of us, you and I haven't thought about all this stuff either, you know, to, to the full extent. Yeah. And now I'm going to just say, before we move on from this guy, in fairness to you, Mick, 
you don't have the authority at any point when you pulled the dollar bill out of your wallet over the last 40 years of your life or whatever it is, you didn't have the authority to change the portrait on the dollar bill. Michael Joseph Vatican could have taken that picture down anytime between now and I think, when did he become speaker? 1983? I think that's when he became. Don't quote me on that. So it's a little different. You're a little too hard on yourself. It's a little different. Yeah. It's a little different. Yeah. All right. Let's. But I'm just, you know, as a, real quickly, yeah, just as we're talking about a full acknowledgement of everything that's gone on, an ongoing acknowledgement, this isn't going to be over and shouldn't be over anytime soon. I just, you know, there are, there are varying degrees of it, but there are a few of us who have a completely clean record. So. That's true. Uh, all right, let's move on to local stuff. Uh, Mick Dumke and I were partners in crime, as he said, at The Reader for many years, and we dedicated a lot of hours to writing about local politics. Mick's one of the few people in the city of Chicago who knows politics uh, as deeply as I do in this town, this crazy town. And uh, we spent a lot of time in this show, Mick, talking about Mayor Lori Lightfoot and how she's handled things in the pandemic. We've teased her a lot about her lakefront policies. Uh, and we've talked a lot about Mayor Lori Lightfoot and how she handled things uh, during the uh, first few days after uh, George Floyd's murder. And there was unrest and how police were... Uh, 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 the strategies of policing uh, and her subsequent fights with Alderman Raymond Lopez. We'll play you a portion of that. Uh, Dennis is going to get it ready, the Raylo thing. You've never heard the full Raylo thing. We'll get your thoughts on that. But we'll start with a uh, reference to an article that I've talk, I talk about in the show many times that you wrote about 10 years ago, and nobody listened to you when you wrote it. Uh, they should have. Uh, talking about the obsession that people have in Chicago with guns, talking about... Um, the ways in which grievances are settled with violence. And uh, I believe it's a general Chicago-style thing. We may not settle a disagreement with pulling a gun, but it's sort of like a lot of people will settle a disagreement. That, that judge who is having an argument with a protester over the Columbus statue uh, in, uh, on the near west side, I don't remember that, threw a punch. You get what I'm saying? It's like so classic Chicago. Right. He couldn't just continue to have a discourse. He had to throw the punch. And uh, so why don't you just talk a little bit about that? I, I consider it one of the uh, great journalistic works that you did during your, your time at the Reader. Tell people a little bit about the story. Well, thank you for, uh, for mentioning it and, and for the, uh, the kind words about it, Ben. Um, yeah, the story is called Addicted to Guns, which in retrospect, I don't know, is a little bit unfair uh, because the story really was trying to get at the circumstances that produce violence. Uh, so much of the conversation in Chicago and elsewhere is about law enforcement and criminal justice strategies to address violence. But, of course, uh, you know, by the time you're talking about the sentence for gun crime, the, the length of time someone should be locked up for it. By the time you're talking about where can I put the most cops uh, out on the street to try to um, keep an eye on people so they don't shoot each other or to arrest them quickly if they do shoot each other, I mean, that's really too late. And I think that um, the beyond the sloganeering um, and, and you know, you could call it sloganeering, I suppose. You could call it a marketing strategy, or you could just call it a rallying cry of defund the police are some very sophisticated conversations about 
what it would mean to actually put resources in places that would stop violence well before it's underway. And this story from 2013 was a, you know, was my, my modest attempt to try to get at that long before defund the police was uh, any kind of um, something that you would hear out there, um, you know, in conversation. Um, so it literally was about uh, getting at some of the, the, the poverty and the desperation and uh, in some ways kind of the culture uh, of how that was addressed by, by some people who had some deep emotional and, and economic needs. Um, in some ways, uh, they're addressed by the use of guns. Um, so that, that was the general overview of the story. And I tried to zoom in on a few different angles, ranging from people who do uh, street work, violence interruption work, uh, to some of the law enforcement attitudes and approach to it, to, um, you know, people who've been in the middle. Um, the story starts with a young man who had been picked up uh, on a couple of gun offenses and locked up for it and was trying to kind of hit the reset button for his life. And um, there also was a guy who had been locked up a few years before him who had gone to work for the Safer Foundation, which was uh, which is a nonprofit organization that tries to help formerly incarcerated people get back on their feet and, and chart a new course in life. So the story wasn't very successful, frankly, in terms of reaching people, uh, maybe because it just had all these different voices in it instead of being one straight narrative. Or maybe just because it's addressing some unpleasant topics, but um, you know, having looked it over again before we talk today, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I'm I am glad that I wrote because I and, and unfortunately, um, whatever whatever uh, pride I might be tempted to feel about it, a uh, few of the issues that it raises have been addressed. So that's really deeply frustrating. Absolutely. And when did that story come out? 2013. 2013. Wow. See, I thought it was earlier than that. 2013. So none of, I would, I, I would say none of the issues that you raise in that story have been adequately addressed at all in the ensuing seven years, starting with just the notion of offering some kind of psychological counseling to people who are traumatized, to people who are uh, in high crime areas, to people who are stressed out, who don't have the money to hire uh, a social worker or a therapist or a psychiatrist on their own, or not even thinking about going to one. And our city retreated, as you know, because you, uh, you were covering it as long as, I, uh, as well as I did, uh, retreated uh, on the... Um, uh, and helping people with mental issues by closing mental clinics. We never adequately replaced those that we closed, and we still haven't. Uh, when I see this, Mick, when I, when I read your story and think about the issues that you raise and see what the obvious solutions are, and then I live in a city where we don't make the, we don't try to make those solutions real. We don't finance those solutions. I'm struck with this sense of hopelessness. Now, talk me off the ledge here, Mick, that ultimately the powers that be in the city of Chicago don't care. Am I being unfair to them? Well, I don't know if I say they don't care. Maybe, maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement. I, um, I, I under, completely understand why you would feel that way, and I think a lot of people feel that way. I think that um, various political realities uh, make 
our leaders feel like they can't really take bold long-term action. I mean, even in the story from 2013, um, and this was not a new issue in 2013 by any means, of course, right? This was decades old by then. Uh, but even in the story, I, you know, had some language in there talking about how many solutions have been proposed to gun violence, but they all seem to come down to uh, the law enforcement, the criminal justice side, and these issues that we're talking about, the cycles of trauma, the cycles of poverty, the cycles of um, of just relying on guns and violence to try to address uh, the needs people have. Um, not People not literally not knowing or understanding how to get out of the cycle of retaliation. Um, even if people start carrying a weapon for their own protection, uh, I've just come across so many stories of, of people who end up using it for, they may see it as self-defense, but you know, under our, our laws and, and certainly from outsiders, it looks like an aggressive act of shooting a rival. Um, when in fact, someone, the mentality of someone doing that may be that this is an act of self-defense. So the point is that, yes, we're both saying that these cycles of trauma and violence and poverty have not been addressed by our city leaders, by state, by federal leaders. They certainly haven't adequately been addressed. Um, if we're going to, again, go back to the let's be fair to them, I don't know if people really know how to address them. Um, then you go back to the other side again, uh, which is, well, you're never going to address them if you don't actually try. Um, so I think that's kind of where we are now. Um, one of my real frustrations is looking over the story. I'm reminded by so much of what we've heard even in the last couple of weeks are recycled ideas that have proven to be failures. And um, we can get into the weeds of them if you want then, but just to, just to name a couple of them, uh, just within the last uh, few days, we've heard the new police superintendent, David Brown, talking about creating more mobile police units to travel around to flashpoints or hotspots, um, the so-called hotspot policing uh, with these mobile squads that are supposed to... Uh, bring this extra security presence to, you know, neighborhoods where violence is, is happening or is imminent. Uh, that's been tried time and time again. And um, it tends to reduce violence in the short term and then create incredible community tension in the long term. Um, so that's deeply problematic. And then we hear this rhetoric almost every time there is a, a one of these horrible weekends uh, with just the numbers that are just, uh, you know, mind, mind blowing and, and just uh, mind blowing is a terrible analogy. These numbers that are just deeply troubling and uh, horrifying about the number of people directly impacted by the violence, um, which is when we hear police leaders and political leaders talking about the need for tougher laws mm -hmm. or for locking people up for longer periods of time. Oh, it's really the fault of the state's attorney, it's the fault of the judges, they don't get long enough sentences, they let people right out on the street. We, we just heard this, this has just gone on over and over and over again. If you want to have that debate, it's fine, but it hasn't gotten us anywhere. Well, well not only has it gotten us anywhere, but this is a point uh, that uh, the Sun-Times and I find ourselves in agreement. I'd always agree with Sun-Times editorials. 
but they've called out Lori Lightfoot. This is a very popular refrain uh, from a frustrated police chief and a frustrated mayor who are yeah. confronting the media on a Monday or a Tuesday after a violent weekend. And what they'll do is they'll say, and I heard, I've heard Mayor Daly say this, I've heard Mayor Rahm say this, and now I hear Mayor Lori Lightfoot say that. And they always have a police chief uh, singing along in the chorus next to them, singing from the same song. If only these judges didn't let out these repeat offenders who have uh, gun charges against them, we wouldn't have these horrific murders. And then the Sun-Times points out, we've never backed this up with any evidence of this. There may be an anecdotal evidence. Every now and then, there will be some high-profile case. So it's it's like Willie Horton. They just throw that out there like, see? And, you know, it's hard for a McDumkey of the world to argue with it because it's such a horrific example. You feel crummy arguing with it, you know, but... The reality is, McDavid, I don't think they have proof of this assertion. Am I right in that? Well, they, I, I don't know uh, the specific assertions you've heard recently. I'm not sure what proof they have. Um, but, I mean, if you look closely, uh, you will probably find that a lot of people involved directly in gun violence do have criminal records. Um, but what, what's your point with that? Okay? I mean, almost everybody who gets locked up uh, for any offense is coming out. I mean, even most people who are involved in, um, you know, deaths or homicides, they're going to come out at some point in time. And so I think that is a total red herring kind of argument. I mean, if you want to argue that, you know, people who are convicted of felonies are ill-prepared to come back out onto the street afterwards, I think you'd have a, a wide uh, number of people agreeing with you, including you and me. I mean, that's, that gets at the prison system. That gets at the incarceration system. But just to throw this thing out there that there's too many felons walking the streets, uh, you know, all you want to do is lock more people up. You have no solution. They're all coming out at some point in time. Got news for you people out there. They're coming out. Okay. Um, so, that, that just doesn't address the problem at all. And, and if you're getting into the specifics of do the sentences fit the crime, uh, those discussions have been had over and over and over again. Um, there's actually someone I quote in this story we started talking about that I wrote from 2013 saying uh, about the, the whole gun sentencing debate. They basically said, um, you know, most of these young people out on the street uh, – mostly we're talking about young men uh, who are engaged in carrying illegal weapons, shooting weapons. They don't think about the sentencing. They've got so many other things going on. Do you think they're wondering whether they're going to get an extra six months, you know, on their sentence? If if the latest news out of Springfield has hit them, if that's going to affect their decision to carry a gun or not. I mean, it's really illogical. If you're at the point where you're deciding whether to carry a weapon illegally you're at the point where you're deciding whether to shoot someone and potentially kill them. You are not thinking about whether the sentence is going to get you two years or five years or seven years in prison. So many other things are going on. It just does not compute. Yeah. 
Uh, and this is, uh, like I said, this has been an argument that's been going on uh, at least since 2013 and when Mick wrote that story. And obviously it's been going on a lot long. It, it wasn't like the argument was just created in 2013. Uh, and, and yet we seem so inadequate uh, in confronting it, which leads me uh, to your thoughts on Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the, the larger issue of policing uh, and reducing crime in Chicago. She's now been in office, Mick, for over a year so, you know, she's the one in charge. As much as I may want to blame everything on Rahm Emanuel, he's no longer around. Uh, so what's your, uh, <laughs> I still will blame lots of stuff on him, but I can't blame the last year or so on him. Uh, what's your uh, general thoughts on how Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, has handled uh, these policing situations since she's been mayor? Well, I think she hasn't handled them great, but in fairness to her, I uh, don't know that anyone can walk in and flip a switch and address all these issues. Um, during the time she's been mayor, she, of course, has had a, uh, she had a carryover police superintendent from Rahm Emanuel's tenure, Eddie Johnson, who uh, ended up being dismissed ahead of time. She brought in a temporary fill-in uh, uh, Charlie Beck from Los Angeles who oversaw a period in Los Angeles where they had a tremendous success in reducing their violent crime numbers. Um, and then she brought in a new uh, police superintendent who uh, seems to be a very compelling individual with a very powerful and sometimes painful personal story about how he and his family have been affected by gun violence. These, none of these are people who don't know what's going on. But um, the problem is this conversation, again, keeps coming back to policing and police strategies. Um, I am a little disappointed that, that the mayor and the new police superintendent hadn't studied up on some of the rhetoric from their predecessors. Because you and I have just spent the last couple of minutes talking about how they're recycling all these, um, all these old ideas and all this old language that has proven to be uh, inadequate to the job at hand. And so I'm just disappointed that they don't seem to have anything fresh to say about the uh, weekend to weekend kind of, you know, emergency situations that we face. Um, I will say Lori Lightfoot from the beginning of her administration has talked about the need for long-term investments in some of the communities hardest hit by violence, uh, which are of course also the communities hardest hit by, by uh, generational poverty, by uh, segregation of different kinds. Um, most recently, some of the same communities hit hard by the COVID pandemic. Uh, but she has been talking about that kind of stuff and, some of her uh, programs, um, they're saying they're going to, you know, we're going to see a little bit more lift off from them in the near future. But addressing those long-term kind of things, then uh, they, you know, that that is going to have to be a sustained thing that uh, may need to go on long past, uh, however Lori Light, you know, whatever Lori Lightfoot's tenure as mayor ends up being. So I think your question specifically about handling the police stuff. Um, I think it has not gone terribly well. Um, definitely going to need some new messaging and some new strategies about the police part of it specifically. And I think she's also going to need to reassure people and get more buy-in from people out in the neighborhood that there is something else going on besides just 
where to put cops from weekend to weekend. We used to have something, uh, community policing in the city of Chicago, Mick. Uh, you wrote about that a lot. Uh, then it died. It just went away. Why did that happen? Well, because I think um, probably for a number of reasons, uh, community police was supposed to be a strategy for the entire department, but um, it never really reached that level, probably because of skepticism within the ranks, as well as a, um, a lack of uh, commitment of resources to make sure that there are uh, enough people both to chase 911 calls and also to truly engage in um, relationships with people in the neighborhood. Um, so very quickly, when after Mayor Kennedy initiated what he called a community policing strategy here, it became a program within the Department of Police instead of a strategy that guided the whole police department. Yeah. And then over the years, the program just got whittled away. Um, you know, with each successive uh, police superintendent, every so often you'll hear people dust off the terminology and they'll talk about reviving community policing, but there's really never been a commitment to make sure that the strategy of law enforcement, the strategy of policing starts with talking with members of the community on solving problems. It was meant to be preventative. It's meant to do some of the stuff that you and I've been talking about for most of the last uh, 40 minutes, um, which is to, you know, prevent community, um, to address community issues and prevent like situations from unraveling long before they get to the point of gun violence. Really the only thing that's lasting from those original ideas, as far as I can see, are, are chat meetings, you know, the, the monthly or, or every two month meetings that you have in many police beats. But even that, I think the participation has really fallen off a cliff in, in most places. Uh, and uh, there was also talk of having a, uh, an elected board uh, that would oversee the police department, and it looks like that is never is not going to happen under Lori Lightfoot's watch. So these efforts to bring the community uh, in uh, to work more closely with the police, in some cases actually supervising the police, does not seem to be happening in the city of Chicago, to put it mildly, Mick. No, and I mean, how many uh, items on the checklist agreed uh, to uh, reforms uh, the consent decree or seeing the police department, how many items in that checklist had been unaddressed? I mean, that's, that's literally a prescription for, you know, trying to uh, fix some of the systemic issues that this police department has uh, wrestled with. And it's a very clear laid out, there's a clear laid out timetable. There's a monitor uh, we're paying money to, to oversee the execution of this and, uh, deadline after deadline has been missed. Um, and that includes over the last year. And Lori Lightfoot, this is one of her key promises as a, uh, you know, touting this herself as a progressive agent of change. This is one of the key promises. Um, and one of the areas of expertise she cited, given her history working with the police department and the police board. Uh, coming into the mayor's office. So um, they have a long way to go on that. Yeah, they do, uh, if they're heading in that direction at all. All right, now uh, we're coming to that point uh, in the show where we discuss uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's relationship with Alderman Raymond Lopez. This is a, 
a frequent topic of conversation on this show, Mick. Uh, we've been known to play excerpts of the showdown and confrontation. And uh, part of it is there's um, a mild form of entertainment of watching public officials actually be themselves or be who they are when the cameras aren't on. I'm not quite sure which is, we have an existential question. Is Ray Lopez the, more like the guy when the camera's off or more like when the guy, the camera's on? We can have that discussion another time. Uh, but it gets at some of the tensions between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the alderman, gets at some of the unanswered uh, questions about police strategies uh, in uh, the weekend of Memorial Day. Uh, and it also gets into issues of how Mayor Lori Lightfoot handles criticism. So uh, we're going to play this excerpt for, me, for you, Mick, and get your response. We can't expect our police, and I don't fault them at all, to be able to control this. But I know that we asked our faith base yesterday to stand at the front line between police and looters and rioters. And I am simply not comfortable telling my churches, those people, to be the intermediary in the middle of a riot that's citywide. We need something better because right now we only have 370 whatever National Guards on standby. Half our neighborhoods are already obliterated. It's too late. We have to come up with a better plan because once my fear is once they're done looting and rioting and whatever's going to happen tonight, God help us. What happens when they start going after residents, going into the neighborhoods? Once they start trying to break down people's doors so they think they got something, or, you know, we know that people are here to antagonize and incite, and you've got them all pumped tonight. Today, they're not going to go to bed at 8 o'clock. They're going to turn their focus in the neighborhoods. I've got gangbangers with AK-47s walking around right now just waiting to settle some scores. What are we going to do, and what do we tell our residents other than, Good faith people stand up. It's not going to be enough. Thank you, Alderman. Next question. Well, no, I want an answer. I that you commented on everybody. I want an answer. It's not something you ignore. This is a Alderman, question that I have. I think you're 100. I think you're 100 full of shit. Is what I think. If you think oh, we no offense, fuck you then. Hold on. Who are you, you to tell me I'm full of shit? And if you think, if you think. We were not ready, and we stood by and let the neighborhood go up. There's nothing intelligent that I can say to you. Well, maybe you should come out of see what's going on. the stupidest thing I have ever heard. I understand you want to preach. I understand that you think that you... Mayor, you need to check your fucking attitude. That's what you need to do. Right now? No. You need to check your attitude. All right, Mick, that's your uh, mayor and uh, alderman... uh, had you heard that before? I have heard that, yes. Okay, yeah, but you missed the part. But Are you saying if I heard, had my virgin ears heard those words before, the answer is yes. <laughs> have I heard that particular exchange from those individuals? Also, yes. Yeah, but you probably missed the first part, which led to that. I, that's the part where I, uh, I did the paraphrasing. Um, so, you know, what's your general response about uh, that exchange and what it means? But it sort of reveals about the mayor and the aldermen and police strategies uh, on Memorial Day. Well, I think part of the response had to do with these two individuals who have been butting heads, uh, you know, since before Lori Lightfoot took office. 
and their relationship has been, um, uh, you know, they've been antagonistic to each other, uh, both issues-based antagonism and, I think, uh, some personal antagonism um, for the last year plus. And so it's kind of built into this moment. Uh, they've had some testy exchanges before, and uh, we've heard them critique each other before in public. But uh, this, you're right, Ben, this is sort of like the, there's no cameras there. There's obviously recording devices. Um, and it captured this moment where they were frustrated about what was going on, and then they were frustrated by each other's responses to it. Um, I do think that uh, I've written about how um, in some of these closed-door meetings, because someone provided uh, copies of recordings of several of these closed-door meetings that Lori Lightfoot has held with aldermen via uh, Zoom or conference calls during the pandemic. I wrote about that before, and I think that her the dismissiveness you heard at the front end of that when he was uh, making a point, asking a question, and and the mayor's response was to dismiss him. I don't have time for this, or your question is not worthy of that kind of a response. Uh, I've heard that repeatedly in other exchanges. Um, this was the first one where it, I heard it devolve into an exchange of expletives and an F-bomb. Uh, but um, there are a number of aldermen who don't just disagree with Mayor Lightfoot on uh, policy, but also feel that her bedside manner is uh, is very unhelpful. And uh, so I think you got a little bit of a glimpse of that um, in this as well. What What's your take on how the city uh, handled uh, its policing strategies uh, over the Memorial Day weekend? Well, they definitely weren't prepared for everything that happened. I mean, that's quite clear. Uh, the fact that uh, a curfew was issued uh, one of those nights, I think it was a nine o'clock curfew, if yeah. I remember correctly. Um, and then uh, it, the, that curfew was enforced minutes after it was announced. Um, strikes many of us as very unfair, as well as um, just you know evidence that plans were evolving along the way. There's just a, there's a seat in the pants uh, part of this response, unquestionably. Um, you know, should they have been ready for uh, rioting and looting? Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's fair to say that unless uh, they've heard something out on the street that they ignored. Uh, that kind of thing to that extent hadn't happened here in a very long time. On the other hand, I think you and I, Ben, and I certainly have this conversation with other people, have, have had, you know, discussions before about like, wow, isn't it kind of amazing given how segregated Chicago is and how, uh, policing and politics work here that uh, people don't rise up um, in this kind of way. There aren't more riots more frequently. I mean, uh, in some ways, I don't, I don't mean to sound uh, uh, just, just cynical, but in some ways it's kind of like, I can't believe that we haven't had more of them leading up to this moment. So from that standpoint, um, I think everything I'm saying to answer your question directly would indicate that they just weren't fully prepared and that the strategy was a was a uh, a thing in motion to say the least at that time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, suffice to say, uh, we need. I would welcome, which we're never going to get, uh, some sort of, I don't know, uh, Monday morning review. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Some kind of assessment, some sort of uh, honest analysis 
where people are called on to explain what the strategies were, what the how the tech, what were the tactics, how they were empl- uh, deployed, how were police, you know, handled distributed throughout the city. Uh, you know, like uh, I've talked so much in this show. I've had guests on to talk about how uh, police circled Trump Tower uh, to keep protesters away from Trump Tower. Was what was that all about? Was that a, you know, was that a uh, a fair distribution of resources was that so important uh all these kinds of questions that should be answered and mick you and i we we wrote about this the um the the way the police handle protests over the iraqi war back in 2003 i want to say it was where protesters took over lakeshore drive and uh and then when they came off of lakeshore drive there were mass arrests around uh, the hancock building and the gold coast when they finally uh, act, you know, left the drive and came back uh, onto Michigan Avenue. And uh, I don't even know uh, there were hearings or investigations. Then I know there were lawsuits and payouts made. Uh, but it seems like, it, to your larger point, Chicago never seems eager to study its, uh, its past policies, learn from its mistakes, and change them. It just seems we're determined to refuse to admit we ever did anything wrong. You know, Ben, if only there were an elected body in the city of Chicago representing all the wards and all the neighborhoods in Chicago that had a committee uh, that was set up to address questions of, and policies of public safety. If only <laughs> there was such a thing. Uh, you could even call it the city council's committee on public safety. Um, I mean... Yeah, you know, this is the kind of thing you would love to see oversight from uh, the representatives, you know, in government here. Um, so we haven't seen any moves toward that from the city council, obviously, um, for any kind of reckoning or hearing about that. Um, and, uh, you know, the inspector general, uh, city's inspector general, has a whole division now uh, overseeing policing and law enforcement. Um, so it's possible they could undertake a look like that, a, a, an investigation like that, some kind of analysis of what happened. And I, I hope they do. Uh, maybe some of us out here should, um, you know, start to raise that question or raise that issue. Um, that's the kind of thing that I, I think uh, many citizens would would love to see is a, a careful analysis of what happened, talking, you know, that involves interviews with, uh, some of the decision makers uh, out there that that would I think be I agree with you that would be very valuable but that's not usually how it works around here there's usually more of a subvert our gaze and move on to the next thing yeah kind of uh, response absolutely so. and I'll close out by pointing out something uh, that Mick likes to point out uh, that that uh, aforementioned committee in the Chicago City Council is chaired by someone who owes his authority his chairmanship to the mayor so uh you're asking a lot for someone who uh, is appointed by the mayor effectively to be chairman of the uh, of a committee to investigate the mayor welcome to chicago ladies and gentlemen and you wonder why really (laughs) nothing has changed since mick wrote that great story uh, back in 2013 all right mick i don't want to end this thing on such a downer note uh so let's end it on a up more upbeat note 
and I can't think of anything to end it on an upbeat note. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, you got some good news. I'm waiting to hear it. And I, then you're like, no, I can't think of anything. Nothing. Oh but yeah. there is, so we'll just end with my, uh, one of my favorite Lori uh, Lightfoot moments uh, where she's commanding people on like front. We have a lot of fun with this, Mick. She decided that as mayor of the city of Chicago, the most powerful person in our universe, she would allow us uh, to use the lakefront. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, I will point out that people at Evanston could have used the lake, their lakefront the whole time. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But now you got to keep walking. So, Mick, I want to make sure. I know you're a big lakefront user. You like to go to the lakefront. You don't live far from the lakefront, as a matter of fact. Are you That's walking right. when you go to Lakefront? Or do you, are you ever feel compelled? Do you ever feel an urge just to stand still and look at the sky and contemplate the universe? <laughs> I do feel compelled to do that. And uh, um, uh, I have some good information that the water is really nice this time of year. <laughs> um, and uh, I also will tell you that uh, people in the neighborhood near the lake um, and the beaches have uh, have figured out when there are uh, city employees or park district employees posted at the beaches to keep people away and when there are not people posted to keep people away. So uh, people in the surrounding neighborhoods have figured that out and are doing their best to uh, work around the rules while also being respectful of the fact that we're uh, in the, still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, this is what I've seen. Yesterday, I was out for a walk then along Sheridan Road in uh, Edgewater, and uh, I was struck by right at 7 o'clock, the lifeguards leave. Those are, uh, we don't have lifeguards watching people in the water now. We have lifeguards posted at the entrance of the beaches to kick everybody out. Um, but as soon as they leave at 7 o'clock, uh, people start to gravitate toward the beach. And I saw two different beaches um, at, uh, not at Granville, but at, uh, at Hollywood and then a couple blocks north. Um, I saw police officers posted at the entrances to the beaches. And the police officers were watching as people went and spread out their blankets to sit on the sand, stare at the sky, and in some cases, go jump in the water. Um, so I think there's been a number of, um, there's been some sort of understanding by either individual officers or at the district level that they are not going to get in the job of enforcing this order not to use the pieces. Um, and, uh, that, uh, you know, and that people in the neighborhoods are going to kind of do what they need to do and try to use them. Um, and use them respectfully. That's what I... See. Well, you know what? That's a good place to end this conversation because it's an upbeat moment because I think that's a very astute judgment by those police officers. I think that's an example of uh, excellent community policing, knowing what the community wants and working with them so that they can enjoy it. And uh, yes, I think it's just a waste of time uh, to keep people who are not really causing any problems to anybody from jumping into the lake and cooling off. just So good community policing by Chicago's finest, and I applaud them for doing that, for looking the other way. 
McDumpkey, stay safe and sound. And uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. yeah. It's a blast. Appreciate the conversation. That's the great McDumpkey. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.